Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Once again, as a reminder, uh, if you haven't already subscribed to this podcast on your phone or however you get podcasts, if it's not on your phone, uh, please do. Subscribing, make sure that you won't miss any future episodes. Uh, and also, we keep hearing from people who uh, are surprised that we do a podcast. They don't know it exists, even though uh, I guess we've been doing it for nearly three years. So uh, if you know anyone who is interested in the kinds of things that we talk about, please let them know about the podcast as well, or write a review on iTunes or wherever else you happen to get your podcast or that lets you review them. Uh, all of that helps very much, so thanks for that. Today on the podcast, uh, we're going to be talking copyright again, uh, and this one should be, I think, a lot of fun. Uh, over um, going back about a decade, uh, three law professors, uh, Keith Aoki, uh, Jamie Boyle, and Jennifer Jenkins, released a comic book about copyright as part of Duke Center for the Public Domain. That comic book, called Bound by Law, was uh, about copyright and fair use in film, specifically in documentary filmmaking. It was a fun and different way to explain some of the more complex aspects of copyright and fair use. And earlier this year, uh, I guess a sort of sequel was released called, Th uh, whoops, called Theft, A History of Music. Uh, it's a pretty massive comic book going through the history of music and copyright law and how it all involves copying, remixing, transforming, and building on the works of others. Uh, at the same time, the book delves into the history of copyright law and how often uh, that ran into conflict with both the cultural norms of the day and changes in technology. You can not surprisingly uh, download a digital copy of the book, but I highly recommend getting your hands on the beautiful paperback version. And for a limited time, we'll be offering a discount code in the TechDirt post that goes along with this episode. Um, so go find the post if you want to get a discounted copy of the physical book. Uh, I should note, um, with some sadness, that Keith Aoki, uh, one of the members of the team who illustrated the first book, unfortunately passed away uh, between the books. So the new book, uh, while Keith is still an author, was drawn by two new artists, uh, Ian Aiken and Brian Garvey, uh, who did an amazing job. The book is really quite, quite impressive. Um, and today on the podcast, though, we have the two other authors, Jamie Boyle and Jennifer Jenkins, to talk about the, the comic book and uh, I'm sure other issues related to copyright and the public domain as well. And we're also going to try something a little different with this podcast. So I'll apologize upfront if something goes wrong. Uh, but in talking about the book, uh, Jamie and Jennifer often like to use examples of copying in music. And it's one thing to talk about that, but another altogether to actually hear the music itself. So we've got some music cues lined up here. And if all goes well, we'll 
will be able to play some music clips, which these two prominent copyright law professors assure me are fair use level snippets <laughs> uh, used here, obviously, along with lots of commentary. So Jamie and Jennifer, uh, welcome to the Tech Dirt podcast. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much, Mike. <laughs> so uh, I guess let's start with uh, perhaps the obvious question, which is um, why a uh, comic book about copyright? Great question. Um, we had done, as you mentioned, an earlier comic book, um, Bound by Law, uh, on fair use, uh, which was aimed prim primarily at documentary filmmakers and ended up being downloaded more than a million times from our site. And obviously, we, since it's under a CC license, it could be many more times from all over the web. And we realized that there was a demand for explanations about culture and copyright and control and and control even beyond copyright law. Um, in that book, we'd really talked a lot about the permissions culture, the fact that people are constantly asked, uh, are told that they need to ask permission uh, for the tiniest kinds of usage of, of material that's covered by copyright, a snippet in a documentary film, a ringtone that goes off, a tiny fragment of a song, what have you. Um, and we had done this about movies, and we thought that was important, and obviously a lot of people agreed. We thought, well, what about music? But then the more we thought about it, the more we thought that we had to go beyond just law to really sort of all the attempts to control copying and borrowing in music because we didn't think that it made sense um, outside of its historical context. You needed to understand the way that people have been trying to control and channel and um, uh, segment music for generations. I mean, we, co we cover 2,000 years in the book. Yeah. Not I was going to say, it, it, it goes way back. Yeah, this is not just like the last 50 years or the last 100 years. It goes... We, we, had, we, we had trouble controlling our, our research urges. And so, <laughs> yes, we stopped ourselves at 2,000 years. So that seemed a reasonable stopping point. Yeah, yeah I was, I was going to say, there, there's clearly a lot. Of, I mean, I'm sure you guys knew a lot of this going in, but it, it sure seems like there was a lot of research that went into... Well, you should uh, see there's a lot of research on the cutting room floor, too. For it up to <laughs> us, it would be you know, 4,000 pages. But then, then I don't think anybody would want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, we, we, we found, as we went back and, and we worked with a, a colleague, Anthony Kelly at, at, at Duke, uh, who's a, a composer and, and music professor, and we really sort of got into musicology and musical history. And this really, this is a sort of 10-year labor of love, um, uh, dipping deep into musical history. And we say in the book, you know, there was at least one time in your life where the only thing you you cared more about than music was, you know, your the object, the, the person you had a crush on in high school, generally unrequited, right? It was, but it was that and music; those were the most important things. And right. we never entirely lose that. And we wanted to sort of put together our scholarly side, which insists on saying, "Look, here's this amazing context with Plato going back and writing about mixing the musical modes." With that passion, that that sense that music moves us in a different way, it transforms us, it transforms the way we think, it colors particular moments, it conjures up memories. And we wanted to try and put those two things, which seem kind of like oil and water, you know, scholarship and passion, <laughs> to put them together. And, and the book is the result. Yeah, no, no it, it's great. It certainly comes through. In, and in... I have to say, we you asked why why did we write a comic book, but it turns out people aren't terribly interested in reading law review articles. <laughs> but if you translate that academic research into the comic book format, 
people love it. We we call it in our afterward pictures of dancing about architecture. So we decided to add another <laughs> level of difficulty um, to our previous comic book by 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 drawing about writing about research about music. And the the result was a lot of fun. Yeah. No. I I mean I'm sure it was fun to write, but it's it's very fun to read um, and and obviously to you know to look at it because it's it is a comic book, not just reading. Um, and um, and and so, so what's what's the response been so far to this one? So far, um, very um, sort of excited, somewhat mystified, um, <laughs> but reasonably enough. Law professors writing about the history of music in a comic book. Okay, um, you know, but people who actually um, read it, um, particularly when they read it about music they're passionate about. So whether you love jazz or the blues or soul or rock and roll or hip hop. Um, you will find, you know, your musical genre represented here. Right. It's also for classical music, um, uh, and, 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 and even going back before that into Renaissance music. And so when people sort of found that we were telling them stories about the music they loved, that's when they get genuinely excited. And I'd say that's sort of one portion. I mean, tech, tech for years, um, mm -hmm. primarily um, from your posts, but also from others and from conversations in your guest comments has really had as a central theme that if you understand culture and creativity, you have to understand that a lot of it is accretive. It builds on itself. Right. Culture refers to other culture. Uh, creativity doesn't occur in the vacuum. And if you think about that, and if you make your laws that way, or your policies that way, or your aesthetics that way, you're wrong. I mean, you're just not getting creativity, <laughs> uh, whether it's science, or whether it's music, or whether it's film, or whether it's code, or whether it's genetic engineering, you're, you know, you're just wrong. And, you know, I have to say that's I, we've been studying innovation for more years than I care to admit, and you're absolutely right. And this book, I think, illustrates that with something that people viscerally understand. Right. Right. So that they're like, oh, yeah, you're saying that we don't get soul without gospel and rhythm and blues being mashed together. And our answer is... Yes, that's what we're saying. And one of the things we found um, is that this is not a recent phenomenon. So in terms of audience reaction, somebody may start reading the book because they love blues or they're a Robert Johnson fan or they love rock and roll. And what we've heard from a lot of people is, well, I had no idea that, you know, in classical music, borrowing was an acceptable form of creation. And so um, we find that the practice, you know, the, of remix goes throughout history and has a very venerable tradition in music. And so um, we found a lot of our audience express a surprise at all the little nuggets um, from history that are outside of their, their, their realm of expertise or the music they're familiar with um, that shore up the same conclusion. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the things that I think is, is, is kind of cool about the book is you, you kind of see the, the same story play out you know, multiple times in, in different ways and different forms. But basically, you know, it all sort of goes back to that point, which is this idea of culture you know, building on, on other culture and pointing to other culture and transforming other culture. And, and that's, you know, that's what makes it culture <laughs> to, to some right. extent. And you just see it over and over again. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's so much, you know, as you, as you go through the book and, and I certainly may be a biased individual, but, but, you know, I sort of cer certainly look at it and you're just like, you know, copyright law is designed by people who don't seem to understand this <laughs> over and over again. It that's right. If you had to ask for a single impetus um, for writing the book, it was when, um, and Keith was still with us then, you know, we had a conversation where we were saying to ourselves, you know, as copyright scholars, would jazz um, or the blues or soul or rock and roll be legal today? Mm. 
That is to say, with the completely accepted practices of borrowing an imitation, not someone ripping off a whole song, just recording the same song over again, right? right? But someone taking a lick, taking a theme, taking a tune, taking a, a an intro, uh, a, a base, a, a bass lick, w would that be acceptable? A set of chord changes, and the more we looked at it, we're sort of like, well, not without a lot of lawyers and a lot of money. <laughs> Um, because the practices in the music industry would be strongly against you. And that just seemed crazy, right. right? I mean, basically, if you think that jazz and soul and rock and roll and the blues should be illegal, or if not illegal, that every time someone soloed, they would have to, you know, ask permission <laughs> and pay a fee, right? So that, that seems just like self-evidently right. stupid. So um, we sort of wanted to look back. And, and what we found, and this was the, the really cool thing, as you mentioned, is the same pattern going back through history. So I think maybe in a moment, um, I think we were going to play a sample uh, from Ray Charles, a wonderful example of this. Um, Charles had modeled himself early on his career in Nat King Cole, frankly admitted he kind of copied from the guy learning his licks. He said it was like a young lawyer uh, copying an older lawyer. But later on, he wanted to fuse together two parts of his life. Um, the Charles who went to church, who goes to these ecstatic sort of Baptist gospel services, and the Charles who goes to smoky rhythm and blues clubs and plays in them and so he wants to put them together and so he starts taking gospel songs and adding rhythm and blues and um, in the examples we're about to play what you'll hear is um, interspersed uh, the gospel song and then Ray Charles and as you see they're remarkably similar and yet there's an enormous transformation so Mike maybe we could uh Maybe we could queue up uh, the the I got a savior example. Sure, and and so happens. what? Just so people know, what are what are they about to hear? Well, so here's um, Ray Charles um, going to make a very famous song, uh, I Got a Woman, maybe the most famous soul song uh, in mm -hmm. terms of founding a genre. Um, and uh, he obviously drew on earlier sources uh, for this. Um, I believe that one of those was. Uh, which your listeners will hear is called uh, uh, I Got a Savior. Um, and he basically takes I Got a Savior and substitutes woman for savior. And so you'll hear um, a lot of rhythmic similarities. You'll hear uh, similarities in the tune, certainly in the formation of the verses. And so you have this idea of here's this person singing about that he has a personal savior. Um, and Ray Charles is taking this and transforming it and saying that he is a woman way over town is good to him. Um, and you can see that this is an example of culture jamming. It's basically the secular and the sacred um, being combined. Uh, and Charles is producing something new, though he is clearly also borrowing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the clip we're going to play, I think it goes back and forth between the two songs, if I remember correctly. It does. Correctly. I've interspersed the two so that you can hear some of the similarities. Okay. So here we go. So there you have it, and um, you know this is uh, certainly one of the songs that Charles drew on. There's a, there's another one that's very similar um, 
from the southern towns. It must be Jesus. But what he's what he's doing here is he's he's really inventing a new genre. And his point is this: the sort of ecstatic longing for the divine and the longing of romantic love have some similarities. And his point is also that rhythm and blues uh, has some of the same kind of call and response uh, patterns that gospel music has. And he says, I'm just playing what I lived. And you can right. also see how people would be upset by that. I mean, you've written a song, you're expressing your personal religious devotion, and here's this guy talking about his girlfriend. Right? <laughs> so that, you know, this, is, this, this could be seen as, as heresy. The, the interesting thing is, though he was criticized and criticized by the people who had written that song, they didn't think that copyright law gave them the power to stop him. Hmm. Um, and they also, I think, um, admitted, acknowledged that they were part of a tradition of musical borrowing where gospel itself had borrowed from earlier devotional songs, uh, you know, was itself rooted in all kinds of traditions that even I Got a Savior can be traced back to an earlier set of uh, religious uh, motifs. And so the, the discourse was aesthetic, religious, and one about appropriateness and respect, like, mm -hmm. should you do this? Should you do this? Is this artistically appropriate, religiously appropriate? Not should this be forbidden as a matter of law? And so right. I think that's a, a change. And I think reasonable people can disagree about, in this particular case, you know, what would happen. But yet, when we look at the formation of soul music, that's what soul is. It's a genre crossfade. It's crossfading devotional music, gospel music, with rhythm and blues. And that's a perfect exemplar of culture. And we even point out, goes all the way back to the troubadours, who themselves wrote quite bawdy songs, which were um, borrowed from by the church musicians. So there you had religious borrowing from secular, <laughs> and really very, very explicit secular. I mean, yes. perhaps more explicit than today's rap songs, yes. um, and uh, turning it into an ode to the devotion of the, the Virgin Mary. So this is not something new, and that's our point. The borrowing isn't something new, but only relatively recently has copyright law provided the framework or the vehicle for regulating creativity in music. And one of the things that we point out is many of the practices that had been coded as creativity in the past or inspiration now seem to have become coded, at least legally speaking, as theft. Yeah. Um, and you know, while we were writing the book, we were almost finished with it, and the Blurred Lines verdict comes out. <laughs> Right. $7.3 million, now down to $5.3 <laughs> million plus 50% of ongoing profits um, right. for what really sounds like, you know, borrowing a feel or a groove, something that most of the people, you know, in the music industry on both sides traditionally of the copyright issue see is acceptable creativity or inspiration. And so that's one of the changes we see is copyright sort of shifting that line. Between, yeah, you know, wherever it is, and as, as Jamie said, you can debate this between creativity or inspiration on the one hand and theft on the other hand, uh, in a very restrictive manner. And just to be clear, um, I, I know your your comment thread is a a fertile uh, <laughs> a, a ground for uh, for sort of trollish discussions of these issues, but um, as, as as well as for insightful ones. But we're not talking, we're not claiming musicians couldn't shouldn't get paid. We're not Absolutely saying not. that someone takes an entire copyrighted song and reproduces it without uh, attribution, without uh, payment, without permission, that that is appropriate. We're not saying that at all. What we're saying is musicians from through the history of music up to maybe about 15 or 20 years ago took for granted a set of freedoms to micro-borrow, to right. interstitially borrow, to borrow licks, to borrow modes, to borrow standard stock intros. 
and now we are regulating it. And that's the point we're making. Yeah. And immediately people are like, oh, you're in favor of downloading. It's like, <laughs> that's not the point we're making. It's a different point. And one of and, the things that we think is interesting to defend copyright law is there are actually a number of doctrines built into copyright law that, if applied as defined, would allow a lot of this borrowing to happen. And so there's a doctrine, for example, called sens affaire, which is French for scenes that must be done, which allows anyone working within a particular genre, so say Motown or disco or, or reggae or R&B, to use elements that are indispensable to working within that genre. Senza Fair doesn't get applied that broadly in music cases. I think if you applied Senza Fair as it's meant to be applied in the Blurred Lines case, you might find that what Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams were doing um, was entirely legal on cop within copyright law as it is currently written. Um, similarly, fair use has been applied mm -hmm. very seldom in music cases. In many instances, um, a borrowing, I think, would qualify under current fair use doctrine. And so we actually do have freedoms built in the copyright law that are not being applied in the context of music as much as perhaps they have been um, with other art forms, such as literature. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and, and we, I think we have the clips for the, for the Blurred Line case, so we can, we can describe, discuss that one a little bit. But it is, you know, I... I you know, it, it that one bothers me a lot, <laughs> um, because it you know the, it it feels like you know it's it's sort of paying an homage to 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 you know the earlier works and, and the group, but they're they're clearly different songs. They yeah. they do have sort of a similar feel, but like feel is not supposed to be something that you can copyright. Um, That's and, absolutely right. And what we thought was interesting, and and to some extent maybe unexpected, is that a lot of people who I think in, in general might say, you know, we need more copyright protection for artists and so forth, agreed with you 100%. I mean, Stevie Wonder was saying, mm -hmm. look, look, this is, this is something different. This is, a, he's, he's conjuring up a groove. That's okay. That's what we all do. To be honest, that's what Marvin Gaye himself did. Um, yeah. Just for, for those of your, um, your readers who are, um, who are unfamiliar. Uh, the Blurred Lines case is about Farrell Williams and, and Robin Thicke's um, song Blurred Lines featuring T.I., um, which um, was found by a jury to have infringed a, a copyright in the Marvin Gaye song, Gotta Give It Up. And um, the many of the things that were found to be infringed, party noises, falsetto, you know, cowbell, that kind of thing, they are absolutely stock for a sort of, you know, funk. Those weren't part of the composition. Right, they were for a, a funk song, and they are also not in the composition. So if you look right. at the They're musical the composition, this, this, the, the sheet music, this isn't in, this is, you know, grace notes, right. as it were, right? And so on two grounds, both <laughs> your copyright never covered this stuff because, you know, you don't get that, you get the tune, you know, like, you know, as you wrote it down, the lyrics, as you wrote it down, the things you included, you didn't include this. And also, even had you included it, um, arguably these are, as Jennifer was saying, sans affair, musique affair, uh, standard elements. I mean, you know, you, yeah. you, we always need more cowbell. I mean, this is just a fact <laughs> of life, right? So, yes. So, um, I think if we can play those those clips now, your uh, listeners can hear. Sure. There's yeah, there's a similar sound. They're Im influenced the same way. Yeah, because they're both punk songs. <laughs> Right, and 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 I think it, it it's important to note, and I think this is something that 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 confuses people, a lot of people, even people who sort of, to some extent, live in this world, but certainly, I'm sure, would confuse a jury who does not live in this world, which is that difference between the copyright on the composition and the copyright on the sound recording, and it seems clear that that 
you know, the inability to sort of separate out those two things is part of what most likely led to this jury verdict, right? Yeah, so when the jury was asked ultimately to compare the, quote, total concept and feel of the songs and had the opportunity to hear the recordings, you wonder if they would, if it would have been possible to filter out the protected from the unprotected elements, especially when you're being asked to take into account the total and concept and feel of two pieces yeah. of music. I mean, if, if I remember correctly, I think there were, there was some sort of attempt to like maybe you know, try and force someone to just play. Yes, that's the, a that that was a big issue. That was a big yeah. issue in that case. But but the song. So so let's 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 play some clips. Um, so I think uh, these I have separately. It's not as a, a single clip. Which one should we do first? Um, let's do uh, Marvin Gaye first. Okay. Uh, so here is uh, a, a bit of Marvin Gaye's "Got to Give It Up," which was the from somewhere in the 70s, I think. I don't remember exactly when that one was recorded. Uh, but here we'll play a little clip of that. Okay, um, so that's that's the Marvin Gaye part, and now let's jump into Blurred Lines. Everybody get up! So again, clearly similar styles of songs, but also clearly very different songs, right? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of controversy about the um, blurred lines in the lyrics <laughs> of blurred lines, and sure. people can have their own opinions about that. But um, to me, it seems like a clear homage, a tip of the hat um, by Pharrell Williams um, and Robin Thicke, but I think principally Williams, uh, yes. to Gay's earlier work. Um, who's he's saying, look, this stuff is great, you know, and it is. I mean, you listen to this and you're like, wow, am I living, living in a musical wasteland uh, today? <laughs> and like, listen to the freshness and originality of that. But you also see in the song that um, Williams and Thicke, regardless of your opinion of, of Mr. Thicke, that they, what they're doing is they are changing that. They add in sort of rap elements, spoken lyrics. Certainly the, the lyrics present a very different um, and grittier and, and, and perhaps morally uh, less pro morally problematic uh, world than Marvin Gaye's world. Um, there are other sort of thematic elements. It adds stuff that is, is, is very much sort of post-2000, and yet it connects it back to that, I think it was 76 or 77 song um, with its, its particular feel and time. And I mean, the point being here, you know, this is what musicians have always done. Right. And one of the things that I think you've often made um, in discussions of copyright technology, what have you, is remember that if you ask for greater control, people tend to think it's like, oh, I'm going to be better off because I have more control over my outputs, the stuff right. I put out. That also means your inputs, the stuff that you get in, is also going to be controlled. And one question is, you know, music is a more limited 
has a more limited set of choices than, let's say, a novel. You know, think of all the words you can use, think of all the combinations, think of all the styles. You know, music, smaller number of notes, smaller number that sound good in combination, smaller number of genres that are familiar to the ear of, let's say, the Western consuming public. And when you add in that and then put in the constraint of genre, then two funk songs are going to sound like each other. <laughs> so then what are you right. saying? No one gets to make funk anymore? So it just, it leads to kind of incoherence. And as, as Jennifer has pointed out, and I want, we want to be really clear, we don't think that law is necessarily all that messed up if correctly applied. The law has lots of exceptions and limitations, which if courts and juries took account of them, could deal with this, and they're supposed to. The difficulty is what people tend to do is, oh, those sound kind of similar to me, and the result <laughs> is saying you add another 10 songwriters. Uh, how many was it that they added to Uptown Funk? So Jennifer? Uptown Funk, I believe, now has 11 songwriters. Oh my goodness. And so you saw the effects immediately after the verdict. Um, Uptown Funk decided, oh, I think we'll add a few songwriters <laughs> right. to the list for this, just you know, to make sure that we, co we cover our, you know, we... Um, cover ourselves, and so um, I mean, now you have yeah. to be wary of stepping on someone's tones. I, I mean, it, 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 it's so crazy too, because you know, like if I hear, and it's not like one of these songs takes away from the other either, right? I mean, if I hear a song that I really like, you know, often you know one of my reactions is I want to hear other songs kind of like that. You know, I want to explore and and see, you know, even starting off of that same feeling or or bass or subgenre or whatever it might be. You know, I want to see what other artists have done with it, and that doesn't—it doesn't harm any of them. You know, right. and, and, and the, it just... the thing, the, the issue there, a lot of people say, "Well, this is fine." I mean, let's say there are ten songwriters. That just means, you know, nine or ten more, you know, eight or nine more people are being credited and paid. And what's wrong with that? Mm -hmm. uh, we love people getting paid, particularly creative people. Where we are in favor of more creative people getting paid. We right. think this is a super idea. The question isn't that. The question is like what music doesn't get made. And it's really right. hard. You know, you could imagine a world in which what uh, Ray Charles did was illegal. And I was trying to explain to you how if our rules had been different, we would have had this thing called soul, but we don't have it. So you've never heard it. But just imagine <laughs> that you have heard it, that it would have been yes. awesome and you would have liked it, but we don't. <laughs> but it's, it's an argument you can't win, right? Yeah. And so the, the fear is that what we get is much more sort of pre-programmed, much more stock, much more formulaic, much more auto-tuned, much less creative music. And, you know, we really think in the book that doesn't help musicians, that doesn't help right. music lovers, and that actually in the long run doesn't help the music industry, however we define the music industry. And actually, that's a, this is a great um, opportunity to listen to a little Chuck Berry, rest in peace, who just passed away recently, because Chuck Berry, one of the pioneers of rock and roll, was fusing country music and rhythm and blues. Um, and I think you have a clip of Ida Red and of Maybelline. And so yep. we have uh, Ida Red by Bob Willis and his Texas Playboys. Um, and as your uh, <laughs> listeners will hear, this sounds about as, um, you know, country and Texan and, you know, uh, 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 as it could be. And it certainly doesn't sound African-American. It certainly doesn't sound uh, like rhythm and blues or rock and roll. And yet if you listen, you can hear the, the roots of another song. And here we see, we're going to see Chuck Berry is going to base his song on this. So let's hear, uh, let's hear Ida Red if we could. All right, here we go. Now, friends, before there's too much been said, let's all dance this old tune called Ida Red.
night in the parlor farm, the great clock on the mantel said it's getting late. Curtains on the windows, snowy white, the parlor's flooding on Sunday night. I'd read, I'd read, I'm plumb fool about I'd read. Okay. So um, I don't know if you were hoeing down in your studio, <laughs> but I, we certainly were. Uh, I, I, with the barn dance had begun. Um, how how and, could you not? <laughs> how could you not? Right. Actually, I, I listened. I was like, that's kind of good. I'm going to buy their whole album, which I did, <laughs> by the way, um, making your point. Um, so one of the things that our book is about is about lines, uh, not just blurred lines, but lines that people say it's improper for music to cross. And one of those lines was the racial line. Mm-hmm. And one of the points we want to make in the book is there was a concerted, repeated effort with jazz, with rock and roll, with blues to basically uh, cordon off African-American music, which was thought to be improper, something that white musicians shouldn't play, white musicians, uh, white audiences shouldn't listen to. And a lot of very brave um, artists, not all of whom were adequately paid or compensated, helped break that color line. And in doing so, they made the point like, why aren't we listening to these amazing African-American musicians? Why aren't we listening to these other cultures? It was, we're big on walls right now in this country, and this was an (laughs) example of walls being broken down. Here's an example of Chuck Berry, mm-hmm. an African-American musician, going to a traditionally white country form and saying, oh, I think there's something in there which I can fuse with rhythm and blues and help invent this thing called rock and roll. So, Mr. Berry, maybe you could take it away. Maybelline, why can't you be true? So there you can hear it, Ida Red, Maybelline, uh, very much the same structure, obviously very different. I think the dancing one might do to uh, Maybelline slightly different. <laughs> but you, so. can hear, you can hear the rhythmic similarities, and but you can also yeah. hear something that Chuck Berry has completely added. And initially he called his song Ida May, similar wow. to Ida Red, which is interesting. And yeah. uh, Leonard Chess was listening to it and said, we actually, we absolutely need to find a new name. And none of the band members could think of anything. And Lore has it. Someone looked up at the windowsill and there was some mascara sitting there. And Leonard Chess said, well, let's, call it, let's just call it damn thing Maybelline. <laughs> Hence Maybelline. But Jamie was talking about race. Um, you know, when Chuck Berry was invited to play Maybelline in Knoxville, Tennessee, he went to the club and he showed up at the door and they said, oh, wow. You know, we thought this was a country dance song. We didn't realize it was written by a black man. <laughs> and they didn't let him into the club to play his own song. Wow. And he had to go back and sit in his car and listen to a white replacement band playing Maybelline, um, his song. So, wow. yeah. And the, the, the theme, I guess, that we're saying there is that was, that was not a legal line, although there certainly were legal lines enforcing colored segregation. It was sure. a line... Uh, imposed by racism, um, that uh, you know there were actually attempts to make rock and roll illegal. Uh, Asa Carter, George Wallace's um, uh, scriptwriter script and speechwriter, wanted it, it banned by the state. It was said it was going to be lead, lead to a debasement of white culture, right. and there were these fears, you know, fears of contamination by the other, and that's this theme that we see again and again through history. Um, and actually, the music ends up breaking through those lines, over those lines, um, and in the process. I think it helps us understand that the common culture that is the United States is a remix nation. 
which is not to say that a lot of people didn't get screwed in the process because they did. Sure. Principally, African American musicians, all the musicians tended to get screwed. They got screwed worse, right. and they weren't always adequately compensated or credited. But having said that, the process is a lot more complex than just white artists ripping off black artists, though that happened. It was also African-American artists, like Chuck Berry, borrowing from white artists. It was white songwriters um, writing songs like um, Hound Dog and having Big Mama mm -hmm. Thornton memorably, and to my point of view, brilliantly perform it, and then having Elvis take that same song, written by a white songwriting duo, Libra and Stoller, sung by an African-American singer, turned into Elvis's distinctive brand of rock and roll and mixturing rockabilly and rhythm and blues, you see these musical themes jumping back and forth across the color line. And so yeah. our big theme here is control and freedom in culture, not just legal control, although that's part of it, philosophical control, racial control, control yeah. to, for aesthetic purposes. And this, that song illustrates it perfectly. Yeah, and, and, and I think we have the, the clips for Hound Dog so yeah, we maybe we could uh, maybe we could lead off with those. Okay, so um, should we do the Big Mama Thornton? Let's do Big Mama one? first. She's great. Yeah, listen to her. Okay, <laughs> so here we go. Right. And, uh, and then, this, this actually is an example of something that today's law and practice would probably do pretty well. Um, Elvis is making a straightforward cover version mm -hmm. of the Libra Installer uh, song. Um, Libra Installer will presumably be compensated for this. This is great. But what it illustrates for us is something different. It's not the law malfunctioning. It's the example of what's happening every time music jumps back and forth across musical styles. So here's Elvis's own take on that same song. You ain't nothing but a hound dog to cry all the time. You ain't nothing but a hound dog crying all the time. Well, you ain't nothing but a rabbit and you ain't no friend of mine. Well, and if you listen to that, um, this, the syncopated, uh, slightly different syncopation, the hand claps at the end, the mm -hmm. rat a tat of drum that you finish there. And you can see those are elements of so-called rockabilly, uh, the sort of hillbilly uh, uh, rock and roll. And you can see how that process has taken a portion of rhythm and blues and actually started to move it towards what's going to be in the 60s and 70s, this sort of creation of rock and roll. And for us, that's, that's the way that stuff gets made. Um, this is something that would still be legal today. That's, this is something that's working well. But what we're more interested in is all the ways in which people have felt threatened by that process of borrowing over time. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting, interesting to me about all this too, is, you know, so often, um, as I think you sort of, you mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, when we're talking about copyright and things like that, people sort of accuse us of being, you know, like anti-artist or something, which is, is crazy and, and not true. Um, but like, you know, this is, the, everyone here that we're talking about are, are artists, right? And, you know, I don't think anyone is going to argue that that um, 
you know, Elvis is not an artist just because he didn't, you know, he didn't come up with that song entirely himself, right? Right. And I think the the real question, and I think it's a difficult question, is what's the best system for artists? And so if you think about it, there's a bunch of different components. There's a credit component, which copyright mm -hmm. law doesn't actually deal with particularly well. That's not what copyright law is designed to yeah. do, although it may indirectly do it. Uh, there's a compensation, which can happen through all kinds of means, whether it's being paid for recording, being paid for writing a song, being paid for a, a live performance, being paid for merchandise. Um, there's, but a, for all of those to happen, there's a precursor, which is the music needs to get made in the first place. Right. And for the music to get made in the first place, we have to have a mixture of two things. There has to be stuff that's a commons, free for everyone to use. Think the alphabet if you're writing mm -hmm. a novel, right? <laughs> Individual words. No one owns the definite article, right? And there have to be the possibility of creating things which, when finished, are actually controlled by their creator. Um, so the novel, when you finished it, far from the madding crowd, you know, there you go. Okay, there's your, there's your copyright over that. The question isn't get rid of all the control. The question isn't get rid of all the freedom. The question is what's the right balance between the two. And what worries us most is that in our contemporary culture, we see the fact that people aren't making these decisions thoughtfully. That when you actually ask mm -hmm. people and they kind of get out of their copyright war mode, oh, you're against copyrights. No, let's have a rational conversation. Are you... Are you in favor of making jazz illegal or at least making people ask for permission for every solo? They're like, no, that's ridiculous. It's like, okay, good, we've got common ground. Now let's argue about what the best way to proceed is. And I think that's where we would like to move the conversation. Yeah, and, and I mean, to some extent, but what's funny is, is how much of, how even, even if you get there, how quickly it then be, seems to get emotional, right? I mean, so... You know, I'm just thinking even when we're like, when we wrote about the Blurred Lines case, like you still had some people who are just like, it sounds too similar, they need to pay, like end of story, like no more beyond that. Um, and, I'm, and I'm kind of wondering if there's a way to get past that aspect that people are just like, well, too similar, therefore pay. I mean, I think one, one way of dealing with that is to make the point we discussed earlier, the input and output part, which is, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, lots of occasions we've been able to uh, find examples where the original artists themselves, you know, Marvin Gaye, Disco Baby, are actually drawing on earlier songs. So you're like, well, so Marvin Gaye should have had to ask permission? Um, or, you know, what about the person who came before him? And, and how small would the borrowing have to be before you'd agree that this ought to be um, acceptable? Another one is to switch the genres and say, so mm -hmm. listen, you're saying that everyone who does a car chase in a spy movie <laughs> should have to and they're like no that's ridiculous i mean of course right. you don't have to that's the stock element it's like okay great but presumably there was the first car chase right that's a really interesting <laughs> idea right so but we say no you know good for you you invented that but you don't get to own it right you may get to own the movie in which it appears but not it and so to try and show people in maybe an art form they're more familiar with or less kind of knee-jerk about that they actually accept this you know no one owns equals mc squared and that's a good thing and then say so like, talk about the lines where we should draw that. And, and, and I just try and move people from the general to the specific and, you know, pick a different art form and say to them, like, would you really want someone to have to ask for permission in this example? Yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> for some people, I'm sure that works. There's some people who are <laughs> very, you know, dug in on, on, on the viewpoint on this. But, but it is interesting, and it, it was interesting. I mean, there are other cases too, but, you know, the blurred lines is sort of the, the big 
headline generating one at, and even seeing like where different artists sort of came down on it where you had a, certainly a bunch of artists you know sort of line up be, behind um pharrell williams and and robin thick and, and basically saying like this is this is how you create new songs like this is how inspiration tends to work. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a really remarkable display of, I mean, there were certainly were people on both sides, but the vast majority yeah. of musical um, of musical opinion was on the side of uh, Williams and Thicke, and, which I thought was fascinating. And it that case is on appeal. Um, yep. There's a couple of interesting geeky legal issues involved. Um, in the past, the courts, although we think that some of their rules are not very well drawn and some of those rules even the ones that are well drawn are not well applied have sort of resisted going in and sort of making a major fix uh or you know pushing back either saying we should kick some of these cases out early so-called summary judgment decisions we should change the test uh of what counts as infringement and uh that's a high bar uh appeals courts always defer to trial courts and they should it will be interesting to see if the appeals court in the blurred lines case says Mm, wow, this really seems like it is over a non-blurred line um, <laughs> to the point that it's actually going to impede the creation of future music or whether we'll just keep muddling along. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> it's, um, I mean, there's there's so much. And there have been all these other cases too. And, and you know, and I, I've certainly written about it too where like the, the whole space of, of music licensing and and figuring out what is what is and what is not allowed is is such a murky area and so much of it i think um and i've said this a few times in the past as well has to do with the the fact that copyright law itself just has never been you know sort of designed to match culture and then as sort of the means of producing culture change instead of going back and and looking at the whole system and saying you know well let's rethink this it's well we have you know these these you know mismatched pieces that don't really work let's just you know bolt on another one right uh, and and hope that it helps and then it, it just becomes an even bigger mess and an even even more confusing um you know place to create and, and that can't be good for creativity well jennifer and i co-taught a class with a music prof anthony kelly um and the class was half law students and half uh, music composition students phd composition students mm -hmm. what was the good news is that when we ask people, either music or law, what should be okay, permissible, what should not be okay, impermissible, whether legally or aesthetically, they pretty much tended to draw the same lines. Um, you know, it's like, yeah, you can take something, you can take a groove, whatever, um, you've got to give back, you've got to improve what you did, you can't just slavishly copy. Um, there has to be some sort of way in which you're actually building on what came before rather than merely free writing on it. Um, and that was what most people, um, what most people came down to. That was the good news. Um, mm -hmm. The If there were bad news, it was the kind of stuff you're talking about where it just seems really hard to get music to work within copyright. All the licensing rules are crazy. Um, they're so hard to start legal businesses. Right? This is yeah. the thing, right? One of the difficulties in music is, has actually been caused by the difficulties in actually creating a legal business that is international that allows access to music at a, at a, at a fair and you know, reasonable price. Um, so there are all those things. I guess if uh, you're in need of optimism, I think we're all in need of optimism <laughs> these days. Um, looking back at the musicians of the past, the barriers they faced, I mean, particularly you know, African-American mu musicians during segregation, uh, amazingly talented uh, musicians during jazz who were basically being marginalized. 
and watching them with much greater obstacles than copyright law being put in yeah. their way and just seeing the force and the power of music to help erode those barriers and to help you know broaden our understanding and help realize like wow this this culture is so much richer when we allow multiple groups forms types of contributions to it at the end of the comic we say perhaps op op uh, optimistically uh, the arc of music is long but it bends towards harmony um, <laughs> and uh, we would like to believe that um, and it's only at the you know dark 4 a.m. moments that we we muse on the fact that you know jazz and rock and roll and the blues might be illegal if somebody tried to recreate <laughs> them today that's that's in our depressive modes right 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 and then yes and, and there are questions of you know what 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 new forms of music don't exist today that um that might have if if copyright law were different and of course there's no way to know that right. um, we can only assume or guess a lot of people will say well that's not true you've got youtube you know you've got you know all the, this vast uh, area of freedom that's enabled by technology in which copyright law is almost irrelevant question whether that's really true but let's say it is so that creativity still exists. And that's partly true. I mean, it would be crazy to deny that we have greater freedom to make music technically than we've ever had. Sure, um, That's wonderful. And more people who can ever be uh, musicians than ever before. And that's also wonderful. We should celebrate both of those things. I think the question is, you know, uh, Ray Charles could confidently base a career and a well-compensated career, I'm glad to say, on the fact that he was going to be able to do things just as he did with um, the songs that you heard, that he was going to be able to do that. He was going to go on being able to do that. Uh, those songs were able to be produced. They weren't just on some illicit or marginalized or site subject to a takedown. And they became, they were, you know, what was playing on the radio there, whatever one was listening to. And the question is, yes, there's a lot of creativity in the kind of liminal world, the, 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 the world on the margins is kind of, oh, I don't know if that's quite legal, assuming that the bots <laughs> and the filters don't catch it. Um, but the question is, yet, yeah, is that in really influencing the mainstream in the way that it used to? And it may be that it is. I think that's an empirical question. We're empiricists at, at base. We believe that you know reality frequently mugs our beautiful theories with brutal facts, and that's great. Um, but it may be that it's not. And we have a lot of examples in the book of cases where you have these kinds of innovative creations and they're, they're ephemeral because they disappear because they, you know, right. you get the frowny face on YouTube and it's like, this video isn't here anymore. <laughs> or as a concrete example, you can see the way that the restrictive um, cases in the sampling space, digital sampling yeah. affected the way hip hop sounds. Um, looking at Public Enemy talking about, you know, the wall of sound style from between 1988 yeah. and 1991 and before the grand upright decision, um, which announced thou shalt not steal has been an admonition since the dawn of civilization yeah. and how the music sounds now when they have to be much more careful and you know can't at least licitly yeah. um overtly take you know hundreds or thousands of samples and um mesh them together on a single album yeah yes, and that's a style that has effectively and people say well it's not illegal it's just you have to pay it's like yeah but at a certain point when you have a, a musical genre let's say like or, or 90s rap uh, let's say like jazz which depends entirely at its root 
on sample-based reference or on fragment-based reference, you are in fact saying that it's illegal because yeah. no one could afford to go through the time and money required to clear literally thousands of samples. I mean, just uh, what was the estimate of the the cost of recreating? $19.8 million for Paul's Boutique by the Beast of right. You know, they were to do it now. They'd be $19.8 million in the hole. Right. Um, before before a single record, you know, <laughs> could be could be pressed or released. Right. Or, or, so. Well, that's, yeah. So I you mean, either that's... have to take your chances, as with Girl Talk, you know, who's with the label Illegal Art, or... Um, or if you're not willing to take your chances and you're at all verse adverse, you have to change your sound. And that does make a difference in the kinds of music we get. Yeah. I mean, the the other example that I see, it's often, you know, linked to kind of the Paul's Boutique example is the De La Soul, um, uh, Three Feet High and Rising. Absolutely. I think the, the album, which they said, you know, is basically would be illegal. You know, it would be impossible to do if you wanted to do it today. And then you have you know, that same group, De La Soul, their last album, which they did a Kickstarter thing for, what they did to sort of get around that fact was they created a whole bunch of songs for themselves to then sample to create their new album. And you could say that's creative, and it is, but, you know, they've limited the world with which they can, you know, play with to create music down to just the, you know, the new uh, you know, musical clips that they've created themselves so they don't have to pay somebody else to sample them. And that really is an example of, um, on the one hand, like you said, that's amazing creativity, both the use mm -hmm. of a different form, you know, crowdsourced patronage, Kickstarter, yep. and the idea of, you know, taking what the appeals course said, it's like, go out and record these things and sample them yourselves. I think, you know, and people can go, see, see, you're wrong, and, and maybe, okay, they don't have quite as many clips, but it's still great. You know, yeah, sure, but Again, I come back to the question is, if we dramatically reduce the legal freedoms that this generation of creators has to draw on the music of the past in a way that is entirely different than every other previous generation of musical creators, why yeah. would we think we would get a good result, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's sort of like you're in an experiment and you kind of think that we had a good thing going and you dramatically change one of the constants. You have right. to have a pretty strong theory to say, oh, it'll be better. And the theory is more rights means more music. And that theory is, I think, falsifiable at a certain point because at a certain point, what you get is stasis. Yeah. Yeah, well... On that note, <laughs> um, we've gone on for, for, for a long time. It was a really interesting discussion. Um, and uh, I'm sure we could keep going on for, for much longer, but, but we, may, we, we may push our luck on how much people are willing to listen to us. Exactly. So I, well, I think... let's just hope that the, the arc of, of Tech Dirt is long, but it bends towards harmony. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And uh, once again, um, if, if you haven't already been inspired by listening to all this, uh, you should go out and find the comic book. It's, again, called Theft, A History of Music. It's uh, Tales from the Public Domain. Um, and again, as I mentioned in the opening, there is a free download, but um, it's very cool to have the actual paperback copy which is very very nice and large and heavy i'm holding it in my hand as we speak um and it's 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 a nice version to uh, to read through the whole thing and to see all the artwork which is which is wonderful as well yeah um, we, we, so we did the artwork as a form of culture jamming ourselves we designed pretty much every panel in that 
in that book, and readers will find lots of Easter eggs in there, from the TARDIS to the DeLorean to yes. all kinds of references to other types and forms of comics, and, and well, please like find all you can. So we wanted to basically make a point with the art that was exactly the same point as the music, and we, we really hope that your listeners enjoy it, whether for free or in paperback form. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And again, we'll we'll have a discount code uh, if you listen to this in the near future um, with the with the TechDirt blog post that goes along with with this release, um, so you can buy a discounted version. Um, so do that soon before it disappears. And um, but other than that, um, Jamie, Jennifer, thank you very much for Thanks joining so us. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks so much, Mike. We enjoyed it. And this was a lot of fun. Thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll be back next week. Someone will get hurt to grab a shovel and dig up the tent. Duh. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt to grab a shovel and dig up the tent. Duh. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt to grab a shovel and dig up the tent.